Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Today we're going to be talking to Tim Gagline, the author of The Man in the Middle. Tim was, full disclosure, a White House colleague of mine in the George W. Bush White House. He was a very plugged-in guy. Everybody at the White House knew him. He was there for seven and a half years out of eight, which is a pretty long time to be in any White House. And he was the liaison person to conservatives, which meant that he had all sorts of interesting relationships and experiences with people like Carl Rove, with Bill Buckley, with whom he went sailing, with Gary Bauer, Dan Coates. And he talks a lot about these relationships in his very interesting and readable new book, The Man in the Middle. So without further ado, we will get Tim Gagline on the line here. Hello, we're here with Tim Gagline, the author of The Man in the Middle, an inside account of faith and politics in the George W. Bush era. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tevi. It is really an honor and a privilege to be with you. Well, we're glad you're able to join us. I know you're a little tight for time today, so let's get right started. Um, what? Um, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book? You bet. Uh, I am currently uh, the Vice President of External Relations at Focus on the Family and one of the senior fellows at the Heritage Foundation. And in the summer of 1985, uh, a bit on a whim, I came to Washington as an intern for then uh, U.S. Senator Dan Quayle. And the following summer of 1986, I was an intern in the House of Representatives for a a little-known member called Dan Coates uh, of Indiana, the the two Dans of Indiana, as it were. Um, uh, I graduated from Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, I became a television producer at an NBC affiliate in my uh, hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, and, a, and a year and a half later, Dan Quayle uh, was plucked out of relative obscurity to become the vice president of the United States. Dan Coates became the appointed U.S. senator. He had remembered me and asked me to come back to Washington and to be his deputy press secretary. And after two very hard-fought Senate campaigns, I became his press secretary and communications director. And when he retired from the Senate, I thought I was done with politics. And he said, you're making a mistake. He said, you've worked this long at this end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Everybody um, who enjoys uh, politics uh, should be in one, at least in one, um, a presidential campaign. And I joined the Gary Bauer for President campaign. I was with him for exactly a year. He was in all nine presidential GOP debates. He did a great job. Uh, but he went out in the New Hampshire primary. He endorsed John McCain. And on the campaign trail, I'd gotten to know Karen Hughes. And one of her deputies called me well after the campaign and offered me a position um, in, in the media uh, department uh, in the first Bush campaign. And so my wife and I and our boys drove to Austin. Uh, we were part of the original campaign. We were 32 days. Uh, in Florida during Bush v. Gore. I was in nine cities during that time. I was in the room uh, when uh, the decision came down uh, from the Supreme Court. 
uh, and uh, came to the White House. But I did not work in media affairs um, in a way that's very difficult to explain, but which I uh, go at length to explain in The Man in the Middle. Carl Rove called me, and he offered me a position as a special assistant to the president and the deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaisons. And proverbially, I said to Carl, can you translate that into English? And he said, that means you'll be the man in the middle. That is, you, you, you will be the president's outreach man to, uh, to the faith-based community, to your fellow conservatives, etc. And having lived through uh, the, the nearly eight years of the Bush administration and the remarkable toxicity and unfair criticism that was directed at President Bush, I wanted to write a book that just did not look at President Bush or look at the um, at the uh, the administration. My goal was not to write a biography or a history. Uh, my goal with the background that I've just described was to talk about this dramatic twinning of faith and politics in the George W. Bush era uh, and to, uh, to be in line with a genre of books like mine, uh, which are political memoirs not written by senior people. I was never a senior uh, person in the White House not written by confidants to the president. I was never a confidant. Um, I was, uh, you know, one of uh, Carl Rove's uh, deputies. Uh, but because Carl had trust in me, I spent a lot of time at close range to George W. Bush, and I wanted to share um, in, in a very personal eyewitness way um, the character and the integrity which I saw in George W. Bush time and time and time again. And, uh, and that is the heart of the man in the middle. And that's why I wrote the book. Very interesting. And you touched on a lot of things that I want to talk about in, in the book. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, you mentioned your association with Carl Rove. Uh, he wrote the forward to your book, which is a, a very nice thing and a, a really a wonderful gesture. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about? Uh, I'll tell you. I, um, I said no to writing a book for almost three years. Uh, and, and we can talk about why I said no for three years, and I, I, I think it was the right decision for three years. But I have a very good friend uh, who had been uh, a senior person at Thomas Nelson Publishing, which is one of the leading Christian publishers in the United States. And she was persistent, uh, but in a very prudent way. And she said, you know, you had a catbird seat for eight remarkable years, uh, particularly as the outreach guy uh, to the conservative movement and to uh, uh, evangelical Christians. And she was persistent in asking me to write this book. And, and so I, I agreed to write it. Uh, I was very pleased the way that the outline and proposal came together. But I, I made a point of only sharing the fact that I was going to be writing the book uh, with a grand total of five people uh, because I wanted to be able to do it on my timeline and do it in a way that would, would, would produce a product that was truly a contribution because there have been some excellent books written uh, about the Bush administration, including Carl's book, which I think is a very fine, excellent book. Uh, but when I finished the manuscript and, and was confident that I had said something that was new and different and unusual and gave a perspective uh, that, that perhaps others did not give, um, I, I then went to Carl and I said um, two things. I would be very pleased and honored to have you read the manuscript. And if you think it is worthwhile, uh, I would be pleased to have you uh, consider writing the foreword. And I uh, dropped off the uh, manuscript to him. Uh, Carl, uh, there's a lot of things uh, competing for his attention. Uh, needless to say, he's a very busy man. Um, 
but I heard back from him uh, two weeks later, uh, a little over two weeks, and uh, and he uh, agreed to write the forward. And uh, I say this from humility. I was truly um, humbled to have Carl write the forward and to say the things that he said. Uh, but above all, yeah, I, I think that, that, that his agreement to write the forward says that there is something here that is really uh, worth taking a look at. And and I wanted to say things in the man in the middle that were new, that were different, that perhaps had not been discussed, or if they had been mentioned, I wanted to underscore or capitalize or flush them out a bit. And I think in the man in the middle, we've done that by focusing specifically on how this historic twinning of faith and politics uh, is a dramatic part of this exceptional country, but it's also a dramatic uh, part of the eight years uh, of the George W. Bush administration because it speaks to directly to the president's character and integrity, that, that it really was rooted in his, in his faith, his personal moral compass, any kind of magnanimity that I think is, is really quite stellar. Uh, faith in politics is always an interesting question, and there's uh, a lot to be said for it. At the same time, you've got to be careful not to go the, the opposite way. You, you sent me independently a very nice email this morning about my Wall Street Journal article where I suggested that rabbis shouldn't be talking politics from, from the pulpit. Can you talk about how to navigate the right path through this question of faith in politics? Well, what I did in The Man in the Middle, and I write about this, is that I went back through the contemporary presidents uh, and the contemporary presidency, and I looked very closely, left and right, Democrat and Republican, in the way that uh, the, men, the, you know, the 44 men, but, but particularly the contemporary presidents, how they chose to speak about God, faith, almighty, uh, Jesus Christ, I mean, etc. cetera. I, I really, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to take a look and see from a nonpartisan, bipartisan way. And what I found, Tevi, is that George W. Bush was not out of the mainstream in the least bit. In fact, he was fully within the 30-yard line. Um, he had talked about being a praying man. He talked about the Almighty. He talked about how uh, Providence had specifically blessed the United States. But he did not do so any more dramatically or any less dramatically than people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and a number of other people. And in fact, um, uh, one of the things that I uncovered is that when Franklin Roosevelt gave one of his major and, and one of the ones that are, is considered the most important of his World War II speeches, he chose to do so in the form of not a, not, not a short uh, prayer, but a very long prayer that was delivered over the radio uh, nationally and internationally. And I thought to myself, Teddy, you know, if George W. Bush had done that, he would have been barbecued. Um, but in fact, uh, uh, I believe, and I say this in the book, that George W. Bush found a prudent way in which uh, he agreed with people as different as Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. I mean, for heaven's sakes, these were two of the intellectual giants of our founding. They disagreed on the size and scope of government. They, di they disagreed on the concept of a constitution, but they agreed very strongly uh, that if you wanted to have liberty, which came from God and not from government, uh, that you had to have what they said was virtue, moral excellence in the people. And they said that moral excellence in the American context arose uh, from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And one of the things that is so important to me, and one of the things that I want to make a narrative of the man in the middle, is that we have in America a robust tradition of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, that we are um, careful to have no constitutional uh, tests, 
uh, for political office as, as it should be. We have no funding of a national or established church. That's the way it should be. Uh, there is a bright line between, you know, the, the, the revelation and reason between uh, the city of God and the city of man in the, in the, in the Augustine phrase. And, and that's as it should be. Um, but we also realize that there is utility with Hamilton and Jefferson and, and many of our, if not most of our founding fathers, there is actually utility beyond the questions of orthodoxy. There, and, and, and I am an orthodox Christian, uh, but, there, but there is a utility to having uh, this robust Judeo-Christian tradition be a central part of the public square. And as Richard John Newhouse said so well, you know, without it, uh, we have a, a, a public square that is not only naked, but it's diminished. So I think you have to, uh, to do this prudently but I, and cautiously, and I think George W. Bush did it prudently and cautiously, but I, I do not believe that we want a European model of, a, of an increasingly um, insufferable secularization, because as Americans, we know that Tocqueville was right, this robust civil society um, and, uh, and, and, and faith-centered public square is actually a good thing. It's, it's nourishing to liberty. It's not diminishing. Yeah, you talk about this notion of um, Bush potentially being barbecued if he went over the line on uh, faith his participation. And uh, you also mentioned at a time when Bush uh, was asked about his favorite philosopher, and he went with, uh, with, with Jesus and said the, that he changed his heart. I know we got a lot of criticism for that. What, were you working on the campaign at the time, and how did you react to that? Uh, it's interesting. I was in Iowa in the green room the night that George W. Bush was asked and gave that answer. I was working for Gary Bauer at the time, and I remember when this question was given, uh, you know, some of the answers were John Locke and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, George W. Bush said uh, Jesus Christ was his favorite philosopher because he had changed his heart, changed his life. Um, and there was this, you know, audible gap, not gasp, but gap. Um, and George W. Bush retorted that, uh, you know, that, that if people did, had to ask what he meant, uh, he couldn't explain it in the time necessary. And he, it was a statement of profound humility, not arrogance. And it was a statement um, that, that, that signaled that as a Christian in public life, that he was not going to hide his faith under a bushel. Uh, that, that, that he was going to be open about being a praying man, uh, that, that, that he believed that the role of providence and God uh, were central in the American experience. And, uh, and he was not doing anything in that response that was you know, utterly out of the ordinary. And in fact, I write in The Man in the Middle. Uh, I don't write at length about this, but I, but I do write about this disjunction uh, in the presidential campaigns against Al Gore and against John Kerry. For all the other differences that they have, the size and scope of government, security and foreign policy, uh, the, the, the bevy of issues, the thing that always surprised me most, not as a conservative or as a Republican or as a Christian, what surprised me most in observing the way that John Kerry and Al Gore spoke about religion is that they found it very difficult to talk about religion. They found it very difficult to even uh, find the right formulation. I think for a lot of people, I mean, forgetting you know, conservative Republicans or evangelical Christians, um, I think that for the main in America, independent voters, Democrats, Republicans alike, we are not a country or culture uh, that dislikes religion. We don't dislike prayer. We 
We think it's perfectly acceptable for presidents and, and senators and congressmen of both parties, of both ideologies, left and right. We think it's perfectly fine if they talk about their faith. Uh, it's, you know, Michael Novak famously wrote that we are a religious republic. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, and, and, and in fact, uh, our founding documents uh, cannot be understood completely apart uh, from the importance in our culture um, of the Holy Bible and the Pentateuch and, and I believe in the Torah. And I believe very strongly that this combination of, of uh, Jewish and Christian uh, tradition in culture, in faith, in theology, but also the way that it expresses itself in politics uh, is not to be negated. Uh, I think, in fact, it's to be it's to be welcomed because we would not be able to understand, as I say in the man in the middle, the most dramatic civil rights movements in all of America, uh, in all of American history, apart from the faith. You know, churches and synagogues and cathedrals were talking about abolition at length. They were talking about the co-education of women. They were talking about the civil rights movement. They were in in the contemporary context talking about the pro-life movement. In fact, I would say that, that, um, that in many ways, the, the, the cultural context in which religion and civic life combined actually set the tone um, in dramatic ways uh, for the advancement of these causes in politics, that it happened first in religion and culture and then came into politics and not the other way around. One thing that I noticed about your book is just how many interesting and important mem- uh, mentors you had. You talk about uh, uh, Dan Coates, you talk about Dan Quayle, whom you actually ended up working against in, in 2000 in the 2000 race, um, Gary Bauer. Uh, and then you said that when Bauer, Bauer left, he endorsed McCain, which I found kind of surprising because M- McCain was seen as, I guess, the less conservative of the two main candidates in 2000. Uh, can you talk about how that came about? Yes, I will. Um, uh, Gary uh, was and is a very great friend. Uh, he treated me with incredible respect, and he taught me so much. And I write in The Man in the Middle that one man in one lifetime, namely me, should be so blessed, lucky, and fortunate to work for men, the caliber of which are Dan Coates, Gary Bauer, and George W. Bush. Uh, they are three of the most prominent evangelicals of the last 50 or 75 years uh, in politics. Uh, and yet they are very different men, uh, and, and, and all of them have different ways of speaking and, 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 and uh, negotiating uh, their, their, their political and professional lives. And I, and I was honored to be at their side uh, in, in, at very important terms in their professional lives as Christians uh, in politics. Uh, but to answer your question directly with that as a context, when Gary uh, endorsed uh, uh, John McCain, uh, I was still working for him, of course, and I went with Gary um, and took a ride uh, for part of a day uh, on the uh, on the express, the the the, the, the famous McCain bus, um, and uh, it, it was a real education uh, to to sit there for a, a half a day or the better part of a day, uh, and to really see up close and personally uh, the relationship that Senator McCain had uh, developed with members of the working press. It was. Uh, it, it, to my mind, I, I've never I've never really witnessed anything quite like that. And I was you're a Republican. <laughs> I, have to, I have to tell you, uh, I've always been an admirer of John McCain, uh, but I but I uh, I did not support him in 2000. 
um, when Gary went out of the race and when he endorsed John McCain, uh, it was not that, that I had <clears throat> uh, no admiration for John McCain. I had great admiration and respect for him. But during all those debates, uh, I had really uh, listened and watched very attentively. I, I, w- I went to all of them. I think there were either seven or nine of them. And I paid attention. And, and I was intrigued by this, this, this group of people. And, uh, and I came to see uh, that George W. Bush uh, was authentic. Uh, he was uh, candid. He was the same in private as he was in public, which I came to see was, uh, you know, rare enough in politics. And I, I, I became uh, uh, really enamored of the way in which he uh, chose to a- advance his agenda. And so uh, when Gary endorsed John McCain, um, I decided and, and, and I was subsequently offered a, a position to work for then Governor Bush in the first campaign. Uh, I realized that I could be loyal to Gary having done what I could do, and I could be loyal uh, to the man who I felt should be the next president of the United States and the leader of the free world, George W. Bush. Uh, And Gary and I had a a very uh, excellent uh, um, uh, association, Uh, but when I went to work for George W. Bush, I really had come to believe that he was exactly and expressly uh, the man who who should become the president, and I uh, worked my heart and soul out for him, uh, not, not once, but in two uh, important presidential elections, and I feel very confident that um, that he uh, was a great man, was a great president, and that the legacy of the Bush administration will only increase in the years ahead because the achievement in domestic and security and foreign policy uh, grows and grows with age. Yeah, let's get into the Bush White House a little bit. I noticed... Uh appreciatively that you um, give me two plugs in the book. Um, There's no index, so people know for sure that I read the entire book. I know on pages 86 and 114 you you mentioned me, which I appreciate. Um, In fact, you even say very nice things about my work with the American Jewish community, which was kind of you. Uh, But uh, what were your impressions of working in the the Bush White House? There's one point where you said uh, you you looked around the room and you said, I will never work with smarter people again. That, that, that's definitely not the impression that's out there in the media. Can you talk about what you felt about the Bush staff and wh- why there's that disconnect? Yes, there was from the very beginning, because of the nature of Bush v. Gore, a cohesion among the staff that I think was probably rare, even in the contemporary presidency, that those of us who had been original staff members, and of course as we, as we added staff uh, people along in going to the White House, there was a, an unusual amount of good grace and camaraderie uh, among uh, those of us who were not the senior most staff, uh, but who also were not the, the junior most staff. Um, and most of us, at least initially, had worked together in that first very difficult campaign, perhaps the most, and I say this in the man in the middle, maybe the most difficult fraught campaign since the infamous election of 1800 between uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And so this cohesion, uh, even where there were where there were marked differences, uh, created uh, Tevi a kind of collegiality that I was warned over and over and over again by people who had worked in uh, the White House. You know, could not last. I was told uh, over and over, watch out. You know, the White House becomes a snake pit very quickly. Uh, that 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 people will turn on each other very quickly. Uh, and yet, having worked there for seven and a half years. Um, and working at fairly close range uh, because, you know, of, of, of my position uh, in public liaison, you know, with, with, with the senior most people 
and the middle level people and people in the agencies, what I found was a genuine camaraderie, a genuine collegiality. And I knew that from working in the Senate, two hard fought Senate campaigns and what would become two hard fought presidential campaigns, I learned that those kind of high pressure, high stress situations, you know, in politics at that level can either fracture you or co you know, be a, a source of cohesion. And, 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 and in the Bush administration, and of course there are exceptions, but, but, but by and large in the Bush administration there was genuine cohesion, genuine collegiality, even where there were very serious differences. And I talk about that in The Man in the Middle as well. It's not a tell-all book. I say in the opening of the book that there will always be a market for tell-all books and tittle-tattle, and, uh, and that, but that's not the book that I wanted to do. I, I wanted to do a book that actually was an accurate reflection of what I experienced and what I saw. And most importantly, most dramatically, without exception, what I saw in George W. Bush was a character and integrity uh, that was uh, endless. Uh, he uh, is the real deal, and he should have been and deserved to be the president of the United States in those years. And, and our country was blessed to have uh, a man of that timber and that steel. We're a little tight on time because I know you, you have to go, but I just want to ask you our signature final question here on New Books and Public Policy is what public policy initiatives would you pursue if you became czar for a day magically as a result of what you've learned from writing this book? I'll tell you exactly. What I have learned from uh, writing this book, researching this book, uh, and having lived, in the, uh, lived the experience of being a, a staffer at the White House, is that with a few exceptions, but not many, uh, the most important domestic legacy that a president can leave is the way he shapes, informs, and impacts the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and surprisingly, uh, the Supreme Court early in presidential campaigns does not get as much attention, I believe, as it deserves. And I believe that George W. Bush chose rightly in John Roberts, he chose rightly in Samuel Alito and left a dramatic and a very important legacy there. He also, as I say in the man in the middle, uh, appointed about 35% of all sitting federal judges. You know, that's a legacy that far uh, exceeds, uh, you know, either a four or eight term or, or, or eight year presidency. George W. Bush, in my view, uh, made an incredible, achie incredible achievement and, and, uh, and contribution there. And so I think that that is probably where I would concentrate most heavily to really think seriously about the courts, to think jurisprudentially, you know, how the courts outlive any single administration and, and how the courts uh, are very important uh, in uh, American life, both in the Supreme Court, in the, in the appellate uh, courts, and in the district courts. And it was a joy and a privilege in the man in the middle uh, to write about the account of working uh, on those Supreme Court nominations and on the judiciary nominations as well. Yeah, and you are, of course, an important part of those confirmation teams. Well, Tim Gagline, thank you very much for joining us today on New Books in Public Policy. The book is The Man in the Middle, an inside account of faith and politics in the George W. Bush era. The author is Tim Gagline. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patty. It was so with you, and there is no institution I hold in higher regard in Washington than the Hudson Institute. Thank you. Thanks. That was Tim Gagline talking about his book, The Man in the Middle, his book about his work inside the Bush White House. In the interview, 
Tim talked about a lot of his experiences working in the White House, but also about the campaign and how he got to where he was. I always find that an interesting part of autobiographies. The, uh, once you're in the position of power, it's often, I went to a meeting, I, re- I wrote a memo. But how one actually ascends the ladder makes it to the place in the White House where you are of sufficient interest to write a book that people are going to read, blog about, or podcast about. That is what often makes it, I think, a readable book, and Tim Gagline has succeeded in that regard. So the book, again, is The Man in the Middle. The author is Tim Gagline. I'm Tevi Troy, your host on New Books in Public Policy. Until next week, keep reading.